Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerd Out Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. I am so excited to tell you about our September pick. It is Angie Kim's second novel, Happiness Falls, which is by far one of my favorite books from the year. It takes place during the social distancing days of the pandemic, but it is not a quote-unquote COVID novel. Instead, the fact that everyone is stuck at home is kind of just the perfect equation for preparing telling the action of the story. It is told from the point of view of Mia, who's home from college during lockdown, back under the same roof with her twin brother, John, and their younger brother, Eugene, who has autism and is nonverbal. And one day, Eugene comes home early from a hike in a nearby park without his dad. Adam is gone, and it's up to the family to figure out what happened. They are utterly convinced that he wouldn't abandon them, but he was also definitely keeping some secrets of his own. This is a novel with a mystery at its core, but explores themes also around ableism and cultural identity. And if you can ever really, truly be happy, that's all I'm going to say for now, since this is a spoiler-free conversation. Angie, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Greta. As you were doing the intro, we are staring at each other on Zoom and I was just (laughs) beaming and just, you know, trying to keep from... screaming out loud how excited I am. (laughs) Well, I am thrilled to have you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Let's do it. So yeah, you are covering so much ground in this book. I'd love to know kind of which elements came first and then when the pandemic became part of the plan. Yeah. So this family has been with me for so long. So I actually wrote a short story involving the same family and with Mia, again, as the narrator, the sort of first person, very voicey kind of narrator about 10 years ago. Mm. So, and it's one of the first short stories I ever wrote when I started writing in my 40s. And so it's a really special story to me. That particular story was set in Korea. And I wanted to see what happened when they would come back to the U.S. They are a biracial family, Korean mother who's an immigrant and a white American father. And I wanted to see what would happen with this family. And so I've been thinking about... The Relativity of Happiness, which is a theme that I explored in Miracle Creek, my debut. And I really thought that it was going to be a family drama about this family banding together to do Mm -hmm. really fun happiness experiments to help the father get his book published. So that's sort of how it started. And then... Um, And then I came up with the idea of, actually, I think it would be more intriguing if the father 
went missing and the family discovers these secrets mm-hmm. that the father has because one of the things that I'm also obsessed with is the idea of how well can you really truly know the people that you really love. Totally, totally. So you mentioned your first book, Miracle Creek. Um, it similarly is a mystery, but it's also not at all a mystery. You've talked about this before. Like you kind of think of that device as sort of a Trojan horse. I would love to hear more about what you mean by that. Yes. I love that you said that, Greta, because I've been saying this to people like, okay, yes, it is a mystery, but remember, please remember that my main goal in setting up this mystery is not to, you know, follow the nooks and crannies of the investigation and figure out what happened to the father. Of course, that's something that I'm interested in and the reader is going to be also. But for me, it's a way into the lives of these people. And when these tragedies and emergencies happen, I think it just brings out all of these dynamics, the family dynamics in ways that you couldn't have anticipated. And it brings up issues and memories from the past, wondering if, you know, remember that time when dad did this? Is that possibly related to some what's going on now? You know, those types of things. I think that it's my way these writing these types of stories and these novels is a way for me to try to write a linked story, but the links are so hopefully propulsive and tightly knit that people just call them, you know, novels and thrillers yeah. and which are very, very popular. <laughs> and so people will sure. hopefully pick them up. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think I don't know that I would call this book a thriller. I think the plot is super propulsive, but I think so often something like a thriller ends up feeling like I, I feel icky enjoying it. You know, there's like sort of an exploitative element to the, to them. Whereas with this, I feel like there's, there's a vulnerability and curiosity and sort of like authenticity to it where you like, to your point, it's about a really stressed out family going through a really intense time. Yeah, exactly. I think people who go in expecting a thriller might be a little bit, um, uh, and maybe this doesn't exactly jibe with what they're thinking because yeah, it's not, it's certainly not like an action thriller. I guess what I just meant is that it has that kind of mystery kind of element so that it does pull people in. But to me, you're right. And I think because the voice is so strong, um, people who like voice driven narratives, and kind of cerebral at times in kind of a nerdy way. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think, I think, which, which is why it's perfect for the nerdette, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, I mean, they really, we were talking about this earlier today. They're all so nerdy, everyone in this family. But I think especially, you know, you mentioned how voicey this book is. Mia is so much fun. She's got such a huge variety of interests. She's so smart. She's so curious. She is delightful, but I feel like she is also like almost sort of annoying, which is really fun and delightful. And I was wondering like how you felt like you, I hope I didn't just offend you. You look no, scandalized. Not at all. No, that. not at all. I warn people. I'm like, people, please know that Mia can be a little annoying. <laughs> Mia talks about it herself. She says, yeah. yeah, you know, I know that I'm annoying. I know that I, I know my face. 
family. Um, but she, but it also makes her think a lot. And she's really working hard on not being annoying. And she does talk <laughs> about that several times. And to the point where she's like, look, I have the, all these asides. That's just the way that her mind works is like, mm-hmm. it's going a million miles a minute. And she, so she is trying to be thoughtful. So she's like, I know that there are certain people in this world, like my mom and my twin brother, John, who hate asides and who are always telling me not to go down the like vortex hell of over analysis <laughs> and so what I'm going to do dear reader uh, she doesn't say dear reader that's just me <laughs> but she says I'm going to put all those asides in footnotes that way if you like them you can read them and if you don't like them and you think they're annoying you can just skip right over them so I feel like she's really trying to be very thoughtful and sensitive in her own way, you know? I thought it was super fun and very charming and I think it totally works. And to your point, like readers don't have to read the, the, they're a footnote. They don't have to be read if they don't want to read them. No, no. That's the beauty of footnotes. You can skip right over them if you want, or you can read the whole thing and find out as quickly as possible what happened. And then you can go back and reread it and have a different reading experience the second time. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break and then we will have more with Angie Kim about Happiness Falls in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So I want to talk about Eugene. This is Mia and John's younger brother. And in addition to autism, he has Angelman syndrome. Can you tell us what that is? Yes. Angelman syndrome is a rare genetic disorder and it is a caused by four different types of genetic mutations or lesions, if you will, and they're genetic quote-unquote errors. And it causes a wide array of issues, but the first and foremost among them is motor difficulties. Uh, so most people with Angelman syndrome cannot speak. They have some, some are wheelchair-bound, some have trouble... Um, learning to walk and jump and run as Eugene does. And he is a mosaic Angelman syndrome. Mosaicism is so fascinating. I learned so much writing this book. You know how we think that all of the genes in our bodies are the same? We have the same gene like in all mm, the cells over sure. and over again. Yeah. No, there so there's something called mosaicism where like some of the genes are different from others. So Eugene has some genes that are Angelman syndrome genes and some that are typical. Huh. And so he has what's called, you know, what people would say is a milder form. So he doesn't have things like seizures and um, things like that that can um, 
uh, really affect the lives of many people with Ingelman syndrome. And he does have trouble with um, things like running well. And so he's still working on a lot of those things. And Adam, the father, was working with him on that, which is one of the reasons why they were taking this long walk one morning in the park nearby. And only Eugene returns home. Exactly. So you mentioned your research process. I would love to talk more about that because I there are so many fascinating elements to this story. And I know that you researched the hell out of all of them. So <laughs> yeah. tell us about it. I mean, you don't have like a child with autism or anything like that, right? This is really all research that you've done. It is all research, but not completely, because I do have three kids who are all fine now. They're all boys, but they, as babies, they went through, not even as babies, babies, toddlers, preschoolers, they all went through all these different weird medical issues. Hmm. And so I have kind of lived the life of somebody who knows a lot about various disorders, some of which are genetic disorders. And one of my kids who was born um, deaf in one ear with something called auditory neuropathy, he had apraxia or dyspraxia of the oral kind. So oral Hmm. motor dyspraxia or dyspraxia. And so he required intensive speech therapy. So that's something that I know a lot about and have studied a lot. And it's something that really resonated a lot with me because of my own experience as an immigrant, which obviously is not a lifelong disability or anything like that, but it gave me a window into what it's like to not be able to communicate the frustration and shame even that comes with that. And because when you can't speak, our society has such a fundamental deep assumption that I think we all have. I still have it to this day and I still have to fight it that equates oral fluency with intelligence. And so when I couldn't speak English for a couple years, you know, when I first came from Korea to the U.S. as an 11 year old in middle school, mm. I That's a tough time. It was such a tough time, right? Even without any language issues. Totally. And even today, as a 40, 40 years later, like I'm 50 something now, I still have trouble remembering back to that time. And I still Mm -hmm. feel this like flush of shame whenever I think about it. And so to have had that limited experience and then see my own baby, you know, my firstborn sort of go through something similar. Um, And he also, you know, got intensive therapy and lots of treatments and he um, learned to speak fine when he was like in elementary school, but still going through that was so hard. And I now work with a bunch of these non-speakers and I teach creative writing to them. And it is unbelievable to me to see what like beautiful things come out and, you know, and I'll tell them things or we'll workshop and we'll read a piece out loud that somebody, you know, one of their peers worked on and their um, reactions and their critiques are just so insightful and so thoughtful about language and It's just unbelievable. That's amazing. Did you have sensitivity readers as well? 
Yes. So I did. I had so many. <laughs> I, I, had, I had, you know, uh, Penguin Random House, my, my uh, publisher um, commissioned one as well, like an official one too. But I also had non-speakers read and then several other, I think something like eight to 10 different people who are um, parents or um, therapists or advocacy leaders in this field, um, as well as Angelman um, parents, all served as sort of beta readers and were early readers and also people that I talked to throughout the writing of the of the stories so that I could make sure that I was getting details right. So with this book, you're also doing a lot around navigating ableism. And it's really yes. interesting, interesting even thinking about it, like the people who are closest to Eugene. And they're all working really hard to help care for him. You know, I think about how many sacrifices everyone in that family has made to make sure that he's safe and comfortable and getting everything he needs. They all adore him. But at different points in the book, they're all really aware of their own ableism. I think especially as the story goes on, how did you make sure that you were having that conversation as respectfully as possible? Absolutely. And this is something that I thought about a lot. Um, in the very beginning, I wondered if I should even be telling this story. And I worried about it because um, I'm not a non-speaker myself. So I actually asked um, the the students and and I asked the non-speakers and I asked it how they felt about this because I wanted to enable them and this is one of the reasons why I'm teaching these classes to to be able to tell their own stories but they also were very very gracious and you know told me that um, they thought that my experience was with being an immigrant was actually something that made me sympathetic and that they really thought the similarities um, were too powerful to ignore. Hmm. And um, they also encouraged me. They said, you know, please tell our stories. We want to see people like us in fiction. Like they were like, we don't, there's no other novels except in, you know, there are memoirs written by non-speakers. Mm -hmm. They were like, but we want this to become mainstream. We want people to, more and more people to realize that this is happening. So please talk, yes, include this character. But I, I also wanted to make sure that um, the main narrator, kind of like uh, me, was somebody who didn't realize the extent of her own ableism mm -hmm. in the beginning of the story and to, and throughout the course of the novel experiences one you know bit by bit the things that she have been she's been doing and that the family has been doing too and Mia comes to realize that and I think that whole journey I thought was important because it hopefully makes the readers who are going through hopefully a similar journey as they're reading this story feel a kinship with her and also feel a forgiveness, right? For an understanding for our own experiences, having had those thoughts, having made those assumptions that are erroneous and hopefully learn why that's harmful and, you know, go on our way of 
hopefully trying to learn not to do that in the future. Well, Angie, thank you for writing such a thoughtful and fascinating book. And thanks for coming on and talking to me about it. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to listen in to the spoilery discussion later. y'all know the drill we would love to hear what you think of this book so read it and then send us a voicemail with your thoughts you can do that by recording yourself on your phone and then emailing the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com I would like to give five gold stars to Christine who has already sent in a voicemail about this one Christine you're so fast we love it also, it is not too late to send in your voicemails of COVID questions for Dr. Emily Landon. We like to call her our resident epidemiologist, and we are talking to her in this Friday's episode. So record your questions for that one. And again, email those over at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.